Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup, on-farm research and demonstration with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI's team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials, and events at MBFI as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Dr. Susan Marcus has over 30 years of extensive experience in beef cattle production and sheep nutrition, being currently involved in a large cow-calf backgrounding and feedlot operation with her husband and four children in East Central Alberta, Canada. In addition, she has been a leader in the Painter 4-H Beef Club and regularly organizes field trips and educational activities for her club and district. Having grown up on a large mixed farm, in northern Manitoba and regularly driving tractors to perform tasks prior to the development of no-till practices, Susan developed a keen interest in cows that set the path for her future education. With her own fond memories of taming and halter-breaking cattle, participating in the World Angus Forum in Edmonton in 1985 as the Manitoba Angus Queen, and catching a calf in the 1982 Royal Manitoba Winter Fair Calf Scramble, She marvels at the vast opportunities the agricultural industry currently provides to youth. She holds a PhD in animal behavior from the University of Alberta, a master's in ruminant nutrition from the University of Manitoba, and a bachelor of science in agriculture from the University of Saskatchewan. Susan started her career with Manitoba agriculture as an agronomist in the southwestern town of Boisvane. Dr. Marcus has been with Alberta Agriculture and Forestry for 25 years, initially as a beef and forage specialist in Coronation, Alberta, and since 2006 as a livestock research specialist in the Livestock Research and Extension Branch. Susan is also an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta and regularly mentors students in various class projects and research. She started with Lakeland College as a livestock research specialist in their applied research program in February of 2021. Her background in extension and adult education allows her to bring the science of animal research and new technologies into the classrooms for students and onto the ranch for livestock producers. While Susan's research involvement is varied from production, genetics, feed efficiency, and nutrition to economics, she maintains a key interest in supporting practical ideas from the livestock industry. As an avid outdoor enthusiast, especially horseback riding, paddleboarding, cycling, cross country skiing, and hiking, she is looking forward to exploring some of the activities Vermillion has to offer. I'm very excited about our episode with Susan today, so please stay tuned for my conversation with her. 
Welcome to the podcast, Susan. How are you today? Good. And yourself? I'm good. Thank you. Before we begin, can you share a bit about your background in science and agriculture? So I'm actually a prairie girl. I was raised in northern Manitoba on a cow-calf and grain operation. And then from there, I, I hit all the provinces, really, with my education. I went to the University of Saskatchewan for an undergrad in agriculture. And then after that, I was sort of introduced to that there's graduate work that could be done. So I entered a master's program at the University of Manitoba in nutrition, ruminant nutrition specifically. And then I worked for a bit. And after that, I went, ended up at the University of Alberta, taking a PhD in animal sciences again, more on grazing livestock behaviors. And at the time, it was one of the first, like my thesis was one of the first in Canada of virtual fencing, which I've noticed now has sort of become more popular and there's more of this virtual fencing and new technologies. And that's kind of what my uh, research program is now starting to be built on. I'm working on a contract with Lakeland College, which the college itself is in Vermilion, northeastern Alberta, but on the Saskatchewan border. But myself, I'm in East Central Alberta. And I'm here because the cows don't want to move. <laughs> I farm with my husband. <laughs> we have a large cow-calf and a backgrounder and also feedlot finishing operation. And it's easier for me to work remotely than it is to move cows. Yeah, I bet. Tell me about your role as a livestock research specialist with Lakeland College. So Lakeland College has hired on three new research scientists. And each one of us has a specialized area that we're looking into. And mine is more with production efficiencies. So whether that's performance and production or reproductive efficiencies, but also to use new technologies or promising technologies, because we have a new ag technology degree program. And so the whole role is to do applied research. That's research that is applicable on the ranch that can help ranchers solve some of their issues. And the research program itself needs to have industry support. And so we're trying to merge this whole applied research aspect, solving industry problems and getting students involved because students that come there to learn about the degree with the ag technology or even with the animal sciences degree can see firsthand some of the work we're doing and be involved in and how it might be going. That leads really well into my next question which is, can you give me a sense of your research program and what you're broadly working towards? So I guess it's hard to say what I'm broadly working towards when I just came on in the last year and a half, but with all the new hires, and there was, like I said, there's three of us research scientists, and then we come with the team. There's different students and research associates and assistants as well. You know, we're really looking to put together a program that meets the needs of the industry in that area. And when you look at Lakeland College being situated up in Vermilion, that is a very dense cow-calf operation like area. So anything that comes with cow-calf concerns, that could be the performance production and also the forages and pasture utilization, all those aspects are fair game. And so when I looked at it initially, the projects I've got on the go are really about uh, reproductive efficiencies because if you don't have fertility in your cow herd, you don't have much of an income. And so really focusing on that as the broad piece, but then other projects come out of that. You are currently working on a project called Precision Cattle Ranching for Improved Reproductive Efficiencies. How did this project come about and what are the objectives that you're looking at to address through this study? So this Precision Cattle Ranching project 
came about basically um, an industry rancher said I have an issue it may be an issue that other ranchers deal with but in this case it was you know there's so much competition for land that ranchers seem to have to move elsewhere because their margins are, are, are fairly narrow and so competition from whether it's recreational or development or even other crops that have a higher per acre value are pushing the ranchers to find grazing lands further and further away and so in our case they go north or they go a little bit east and west, but still into the north of those east and west provinces to find this grazing land. And when you do that, that comes with more bush, more slough, more hard terrain to navigate. And so the whole issue with this reproductive efficiencies project was open rate was increasing. And so we can look at it from a standpoint, okay, is it nutritional? He seems to be doing everything that he should be doing. Cows come in good shape. Maybe it's an issue of, can the bulls find the cow? And so that's why we thought, let's bring in some technology and see if through GPS tags, we can actually find these, these cattle and know where the bulls are, if they're actually working. And that hopefully our cows will have a, a better conception rate if we find a bull that isn't working and if we can remedy the situation. And the study uses three different groups of replacement heifers across Western Canada. Can you share a little bit on the partnerships involved? And I'm kind of intrigued as to whether or not those three groups also are in different terrain and kind of different areas within those provinces. Yeah, so so the project itself has more aspects to it. Uh, so that was the one rancher having that concern. But the other part is about, let's take a step backwards and just make sure we're selecting the right heifers initially that are going to be the most reproductively sound. And so that's where this project truly starts with these three groups. So I've got the Manitoba group, and that is with Mary Jane Orr with the Manitoba Beef Forge Initiatives. That group, typical, I guess, uh, Manitoba parkland type uh, grazing situation. And then we've replicated that in BC, but of course the terrain is very different in British Columbia. So this is a Okanagan uh, interior ranch, but they make use of grazing reserves. And so mountainous, heavily forested grazing reserves that in some cases aren't even fenced on the boundaries. Cattle are sent up there and they come back when I guess they're thirsty or hungry. And, and so that's a whole different scenario, different predators, just different terrain to deal with. And then, of course, our Alberta group is largely in the Vermilion area. But again, with this particular rancher, he's using some more northernly forested uh, pastures. So heavily treed you know, not as mountainous or not that kind of train like in BC, but certainly more issues with just, you can't, you can't go and check your cattle and see them. So how do you know where they are and who's doing what, unless you happen upon, you know, an injured bull, a sick bull or a group of cows that got out, you just don't know. Approximately how many head would be involved in the project total between the three different sites? So we have very small groups, but we're, we're repeating this in future years. So we brought on about 25 heifers in the Manitoba group, 25 heifers in the BC group, but the Alberta group has 70 heifers, and then that's year one. And then we'll repeat this, bring in another group for year two, and then follow both of those groups of heifers through for the next couple of years. So we're trying to see if we can select these heifers and follow them through and and the ones that we think we've selected, what traits are we looking at? Are they, the, are they the traits that are important that end up showing that these heifers were retained in the herd? I mean, one of the problems with 
with heifer fertility is that often by the time she's three years of age, she may be called for coming up open. And part of that is, is management. It might be nutrition that she wasn't allowed the proper nutrition to grow and raise that first calf. But other parts of it might have been genetics. And of course, there's other aspects that you can't control, you know, an accident, an illness, something that comes up too. But all those things, you know, and all the traits that are important, all the confirmation, temperament, the performance, all of it, we need to track to make sure that we're selecting the right or the best heifers in the beginning. And we don't know we're selecting the best ones just from visual appraisal alone. Mm -hmm. And so there's other things under the hide, like our DNA analysis that we're looking at, that'll give us clues into which heifers might be the ones that do in fact end up in the herd for the longest. There's so many aspects of this study and it's such a huge, huge study that you've undertaken. At MBFI, we're very excited to be one of the study groups. And you've talked about this a little bit already about how the groups are a bit different. Are there any other aspects that differ between the sites? I guess the biggest thing is, is some of the um, people that we're working with and other pieces of data that can be had from the research. And so if I look at the BC group, they're actually a pilot project for a, um, a digital platform. And so we're doing additional work at the BC site that isn't being duplicated with the other two sites, um, just layers of data at that site. So we're getting doing pasture mapping, we're getting some animal data, layering it together to see if we can you know, use it for decision making purposes. And so that's an important aspect because there's other projects that need to work with those digital platforms. And so they'll get some of the data through that project on the BC location. But for Manitoba and Alberta, they're very similar. With Alberta, we had some different um, technology available. We could do individual feed testing. So we could get a measure of their feed efficiency. So how much each animal eats each day on an individual basis. And that's something we didn't get with the Manitoba group. So there's just subtle differences in, in the layers and the amounts of data. But overall, that true, that picture is, you know, which traits are important to select heifers that do have longevity in your herd and, and remain in the herd for years to come. And this is a relatively new starting study. Um, how far into the study is the research and how long will you be evaluating the heifer groups? So we've finished collecting what I call year one data. Basically, all the heifers came in, we assessed them for this um, suite of uh, multiple traits. So like I said, a confirmation assessment, a temperament assessment, ultrasound for carcass traits, ultrasound for reproductive tracts. Um, we also did uh, a complete analysis of their DNA to get their um, molecular breeding values on them. And so all that's completed and that's year one, but I need to have additional years or, or more to this year one. I need to know now that they're all getting bred by the bulls and they're all in a natural mating situation. We're not doing any artificial insemination in this project. You know, who comes up pregnant, who comes up with open or not carrying a calf to figure that out so we can start then to look at what their measurements were, what their rankings were and see who's pregnant, who's not, and, and just start to get a better understanding of which of the traits were most important. And are all of the groups bred to be May-June calving? So the BC group is a little earlier, just because they have an earlier season. And so we've, they've been pushed back. They're probably a month and a half, six weeks earlier 
in their data collection than what we do here in both Alberta and Manitoba. Um, so very similar. And then we'll, like I said, we'll repeat this again with next year's new group of heifers, while at the same time following through this current year's heifers as they have a calf. And then again, follow them through a second year to make sure they get pregnant or bred the second year and have their second calf. So the complete trial will take, you know, three more years to finish, but we're following them through on a year round basis with the technology that we have in them. So we're going to dig into a bit more of the specifics on that technology in a little bit. But before we do that, I wanted you to discuss some of your thoughts on managing breeding herds and developing replacements in beef cattle in general. Yeah, so in, in general, and this is part of why the, it was so interesting to have this particular rancher come forward and say, I, you know, I need to do something here. We're always taught that visual appraisal is the way to go. And you look at your animals and you can see. And, every, you know, if you've been in 4-H beef club, you might have, you know, judged cattle. And you know what's probably looking good for you to select heifers on. And so that's one aspect of it. And with that comes their age and their weight at a certain stage of production. So. We've got industry benchmarks that we follow. We use something like 65% of a heifer's weight. She should be at that weight at breeding time of her mature weight. So if she's 65% of her mature weight at breeding, she's probably the right size. But we know from research that you can wiggle that number a bit and you can go down to 55% of her expected mature weight at breeding time if you use natural mating because sometimes the bulls will elicit the heifer to come into heat just by her, her being around them, right? So these numbers that are established in the industry are, are great, but with the research, it's showing that you've got some wiggle room depending on your operation. So I always like to say ranchers do a great job of visually selecting heifers on age, weight, performance, you know, how much he gains, reputation in the cow family. But then there's the other part that we don't do that great of a job on if and I mean, if you're in purebred, it's different. You have more data available, but I'm talking about a commercial cattle producer. So if you don't take a lot of pedigree or, or performance data from these animals, there's really no way of you knowing what's under the hide. And so that's why this project is also looking at that carcass ultrasound, the genomics or the DNA analysis of all these maternal and carcass and growth traits. Fertility is really down to management because it's not highly heritable. So we can't have a big impact in it by just picking the genetics of them. It also comes into play that our feeding program and management have to be top notch to get heifers to breed back. When I, you know, when I talk to people about breeding programs and management, it really comes down to you do a great job on the visual assessment and those basic body weights, but you need to look at the other things that make you money and the other things that make you money besides number one fertility in a cow herd is growth traits and carcass traits and those can't be seen often without some of these extra measurements and so that's why the the dna piece to this and the ultrasound are so important often solely bulls are evaluated in a breeding program what disadvantages does only focusing on bulls for reproductive traits have on overall herd profitability and sustainability? So we, we do a pretty good job of evaluating bulls. We have our breeding soundness evaluations for bulls. And we seem to leave the heifers out sometimes. Now, in our project, we do have a reproductive tract scoring. And so ultrasound of the uterus, 
uh, looks at the follicles, the maturity of them, and so we can score them and have a pretty good assessment of, of, uh, of the heifers for their potential to carry a calf. But when we um, only look at the bulls, what we're missing is the cost that comes with cows because you maintain them for the whole year, right? If she's not lactating or, or pre-calving, she really doesn't demand much for nutrition. It's basically a maintenance ration. And so if we don't look at some of these other aspects like her feed efficiency, her genetic potential for some of these carcass traits, they all transfer over to economics. I mean, it's additive. We have a little bit, we can capture a little bit from feed efficiency. We can capture a little bit from, from her growth traits and the carcass traits that she passes on. So, you know, you might think 50-50, the bull provides 50% of the genetics and the cow the other 50, but really it's about 80% that the bull is providing because Oftentimes, one bull is the sire of multiple females in your in your herd. So you've still got that that cow that you're providing a maintenance ration to for like 300 days of the year. And if you're not selecting for the most efficient cows, and when I say efficient, it's not just feed, it's reproductive efficiency as well. If you're not selecting for that, there's some profitability that, that can be lost there or left behind. Do you know, is there a number of, like, I'm thinking if the cow has say the best nutrition, she's in a program where she's being well looked after. Is there kind of like a percentage of cows that you would expect to be less fertile or less able to carry a calf? So when, if we look at open rates in heifers, they're typically two to 3% higher than what your cow rate is. So if we say cows, it's normal to have, and this is from a a Western Canadian cow calf audit that was done a couple of years back. So it's normal to have like six to 8% open rate in your cows. So your assumption is I fed everybody the same. Some just don't do as well with the resources I've provided them or the genetics aren't there or whatever it is. So heifers, you know, you add two or 3% to that. And so now we're, we're getting, you know, eight, nine up to 12% of an open rate. So for easy figuring, you know, we're looking at 10% of the heifers are going to probably be open, even though we might do our best to select for the ones that do well in our area. And that's back to my point of why we have a BC ranch, because those cows have to run up and down a mountain and away from predators to find their feed, whereas other animals, maybe on the prairies in Alberta here, they're walking long distances to get to water and back. So, I mean, they have to be fit for the area they're in. And in Manitoba, you know, if you're in the Interlake region or Northern Manitoba, there's a lot of moisture and, and flies and mosquitoes they might have to deal with. So, you know, you fit your animal to the right environment and you're still going to get those averages of, you know, five to 7% open rate on cows and probably eight to 12% on, on the heifers. So, you know, why is that? Well, that's just the nature of an animal that's growing. That's some, some of it is biology and physiological limitations. But I still, you know, we think in the industry and from the research that's been done prior, there can be some small gains here and there if we can look a little more closely into all these important traits and, and come up with a better selection selection parameters for these heifers when we select them as, we, as weaned calves into our breeding herd. And you've talked a little bit about this already as well, about cow fertility being such an important trait when you're thinking about um, sustainability and profitability of a cow-calf program, can you speak a little bit more to that as far as that cost of maintenance for the year and why that fertility is just so important? 
Yeah, so the whole thing with the profitability or the sustainability of a beef cow-calf operation is that your most number one economically important trait is fertility. Number two is the growth and number three is the carcass. And that's in that order. And we often focus on, okay, let's get the most pounds of beef. Let's get the highest weaning weight. You know, let's get these output numbers without realizing what goes into them. So fertility is important, but I also have to have that fertile cow that can be feed efficient. So I don't want to have to feed her a lot in order for her to create that calf for me. She needs to be very efficient with the feed that she's utilizing so that I don't have high input costs on my feed. And, you know, we know, you know, 40 to 60% of your costs of production are feed related. That's a huge cost. So if we can get better feed efficiencies, then that will allow us to better utilize the, the feed that we are putting into the cows. And then with that, if she can be feed efficient and also be fertile and raise a calf, well, then you've, you know, you've got two out of the three that are giving you a high return from that herd as far as your profitability is concerned. So it really is important. And we also, I want to add that I'm talking about commercial cattlemen. And part of this project too, was that we've, we often select for animals to be consistent in our herd, right? If, if we're selling a group of calves, we want them to look very uniform, very consistent. And so what's happened over the years, and if we look back over 20 years, there's been a movement to get the same color in your herd. Maybe that means the same breed type. And if you're a commercial cattleman and you have the same breed type and you breed back to that same breed type, well, in effect, you're losing your advantage of having a hybrid vigor because that, that gets you additive pounds on those weaned calves. So when you can, you know, again, make these small changes, if I, with my heifer project, I'm giving you an example of their breed composition in one of our assessments. So through the DNA, we'll be able to tell you what breeds she's comprised of. Well, then you can make a better mating selection for her. So if I have a one quarter Angus, one quarter Hereford, one quarter Shorthorn and one quarter Limousine in this particular heifer, that's a lot of hybrid vigor. I'm, I've got quite an opportunity to select any kind of bull that I want to breed to her and I'll still get good, good crossbred calf with good performance. But if you find out from your DNA that that same black heifer is 80% Angus and 20% and red Angus, let's say black Angus and red Angus, then she's practically going towards the purebred side. And so you might want to bring in another bull that's not Angus in order to take advantage of that hybrid vigor. And that hybrid vigor means better fitness traits, better disease susceptibility, uh, more longevity. So all those fitness type traits are found in animals that have more hybrid vigor. So that goes back to the fertility aspect that you asked me about. You know, if our cows get too, if as a commercial cattleman, I've got a herd that is getting too much of one breed, I might be losing out on these small advantages of hybrid vigor. And so that might mean pounds, that might be illness or other things that come up or less time in the herd. She might not stay in the herd as long. All those things can be translated into money back to the herd. I'm writing down a few questions as you're talking here. Are the breed compositions of each of the groups similar that you're looking at or are they different? So when I asked for the different groups, we wanted to get something typical. And so everyone has told me they have Angus Simmental crossbreds. In each of the three provinces, that's kind of the group we went with. Now in the one herd, they're Angus Simmental crossbred, but they happen to be red and red brothel faces. 
In the other two groups, they're Angus Simmental, but they happen to be black and black bronco face type cattle. What's interesting, that's what they told me they were. Then when we ran the DNA and looked at the actual breed composition, you know, in the one herd, they're very crossbred and the hybrid vigor is fairly good, except for the odd few animals that seem to be solely, you know, one breed, they're more Angus than anything. So those are the kinds of things we're trying to figure out is, is if maybe these are the animals that don't breed back, have issues with their fertility or their longevity, you know, their performance, whatever it is. And so we're ranking the heifers based on a number of different traits into top third, middle third, and bottom third. And so once we get the data back, we'll see if some of these animals that maybe don't have the hybrid vigor advantage are going to fall into the bottom third. And if even if they don't, maybe their offspring will if they've been mated back to their same breed. So if I have that predominantly Angus heifer and she gets mated to an Angus bull, that calf probably going to be more Angus, getting close to purebred Angus, and he might not have the performance of the other animals in that group. So those are the kinds of things we'll, we'll be looking into. Is there a breed that you would say would be more fertile than others when you're thinking about say future crosses, whether you have an Angus herd or a Semmental herd, when you're looking at bringing in bulls or purchasing new cows, is there a breed that you would say would be kind of a better option for producers? No, no, any, any breed can work because again, we can't select cattle on one trait or one aspect. So to say, you know, if I, if I use Hereford, it's the best breed. I mean, that every breed has their their advantages and disadvantages. And that's why the crossbreeding is, is trying to make, take advantage of all those different aspects that you need in your herd. Because you'll have the cow herd established for whatever reasons. And usually it's because of the resources that you have available and, and the management style that you have and how you like to handle the cattle. And you build your herd based on that. And then you bring in the bull that's going to complement that cow herd. And so whatever breed he is, there, there's numerous breeds that that can work. So there isn't one that I'd say it was over another one. And do you have a certain size of cattle that you're kind of looking at or that you would prefer to have used in the program? Yeah, with anything in moderation is sort of the aspect. I don't want any ones that get too extreme because again, like I said, with feed efficiency, the larger the animal gets, the more you have to feed it. And so the cost can go up and they might not be recouped in the size of the calf that that cow delivers, right? That may not pay for itself. So and again, the resources we're dealing with. So we're, we're not dealing with hugely large ones. We're not dealing with, you know, very small ones, but we'd be in that typical 1275, 1300 to 1450 pound cow. You know, that range, give or take hundred pounds is where we're sitting at. We're definitely not looking at 15 and 1600 pound mature cows, nor are we looking at, you know, under 1250 pound cows, a, a smaller cow frame, but everything in between there is, is sort of the, the typical range. What are the current limitations in using cow fertility as a trait for selection in cattle herds? So fertility alone is so lowly heritable that really, if you do something wrong with your management or your nutrition, what you thought could have been a highly fertile herd could be gone within a year, right? Like within that year, it may, something may happen that you don't get the response you think. So that's the piece about fertility that is, it's hard to select for just fertility. It has to come with other, other traits and that the whole package works for you. 
So that whole thing about it being lowly heritable, that's the number one reason why we just can't select on fertility alone. Just because a cow family, you know, is known with their reputation to always deliver calves and never comes open, doesn't mean that she's in, invincible or something with the nutrition or management could change that. That makes sense. Which And it's interesting to me because like on our cow-calf operation, we do have purebreds and they talk about the cow families and, oh yeah, her mom and her grandmother, they were all, they all raised a great calf for this many years. And, and it's very interesting to hear that that's not something that's, that's passed down. Interesting. Yeah, there are, there are maternal traits, but mm-hmm. fertility itself is, it's not highly heritable. I mean, we do a good job with the growth traits and the carcass traits because they have more highly heritable function to them. So we can select on a cow that always produces, you know, bigger calves or more, you know, marbling or some of those things that have more heritability. So that's, that's why. How does climate impact reproduction efficiency and why is this important to consider? So the climate thing is another piece that really comes into play, especially with our BC location. And that's why we chose them. The location of that herd is in an area that can routinely get plus 40 or plus 45 degrees Celsius in the summer and down to minus 40 in the winter. So those two extremes, you know, you have to have an animal that can work on either of those ends, right? So climate is huge because cows have to be able to maintain their fertility even when the weather is against them. I look at example of last year, we had a a heat dome come through and in the BC area as well. And what, what we know happens is that when cattle are under such heat stress, they'll go look for shade, hide out. And so they're, they're not really actively breeding if you don't get cooling in the night. So when the temperature stays fairly warm, then all their daytime activity is basically put to a standstill. And then in the evening, they'll mill around again, they'll start their grazing and they might start their breeding behaviors again. But if we get too much heat in the evening hours, then that'll just take away from our, our time when the cow is receptive to, to breeding. I mean, she's only receptive for, you know, 18 to 24 hours, let's say. And so if the bull is hiding out because he's too hot and then she moved off in another bush patch and he can't see her, well, then you might lose that cow's complete cycle and she doesn't get bred until hopefully the next one. So the climate with those hot temperatures during our breeding season, and, and again, that would be from our cattlemen that are breeding in that June, July, August timeframe, you know, and there's reasons why you don't move that because you don't want to calve in certain other seasons, right? So it tends to stay in that June, July, August around here anyways, and in the, the BC group, maybe a little earlier, but you have to balance that with everything else you're doing on the farm. And so if you're trying to you know, harvest, or you're trying to do other, you know, jobs that interfere, and you don't want to be calving at the same time, then you're limited. And when you can have that breeding season, and so of course, weather will affect it. Would you say that there would be a, not a month that would be more ideal to breed in, but I'm just trying to think, like we run a herd that is purebred, but that calves in April, May, June, I guess. And I'm just wondering if, say the bulls that are in a calving program that is a February, March calving group, if they would be more efficient, say in their um, breeding season, than they are when they're utilized to breed those cows that are calving in May and June. So there was some research that came out of that um, cow-calf audit saying if you, and I believe it was if you calved before 
June. So basically, anytime we're looking at this July, August period of, of breeding season, that does affect your calf crop. There's probably more issues with cows being open because of the heat. And so to back it off, you probably get better results. But then at the same time, you have to look at, okay, what feed resources are available during that time when that cow is now late gestation or when she's lactating, you know, and you're trying to match that up to your pasture growth so that she's, you know, on an increasing plane of nutrition when, she, when she's just calved and lactating. And so all those things have to come into this decision. It's not an easy decision to say, oh, well, the survey said that probably get better results if we don't, you know, breed in July and August. But then you got to look at what kind of, what does that mean for your feeding program and all the other aspects of, of the farm? Mm -hmm. But yes, the, definitely the July, August was a bit of an issue. Tell me a bit about the current estrus detection pilot study at Lakeland. How does it lead into the current study? So we did a pilot study because we wanted to use some promising technology that was out there to detect estrus. And you're probably familiar with, I mean, there's lots of ways you can detect estrus. You could have a, a vasectomized bull that you turn out and just if he mounts the cows and he has a chin uh, colored paint marker on him, it'll paint the cows. And then there was some... Um, patches that you put on the tail head and if the, the cows are mounted that patch gets rubbed off and you know that they've come into heat but we were looking at something a little more into the technology that remote sensors something that might provide additional data with it instead of me having to go and look at the animal oh yes she's painted blue that means that bull jumped on her and so there's a uh, a bolus that we used it's inserted into the rumen it, it falls into the reticulum and stays there for what they say is a life of the bolus about four or five years and that bolus is able to provide both an activity monitoring so if she's got high activity or low activity or no activity and also temperature and the temperature comes every 10 minutes and it gives us 0.1 of a degree celsius change Part of that change happens when they drink water. Every time they drink water, that bolus will get a little cooled down. And so then I know that she is drinking water. And so that leads you to, okay, if they're not drinking water, they might be sick or off feed. So that it can tell you that piece too. So it was a way to get estrus detection and what other data might be useful into this project. And so we, we did a few head with that. It seemed promising. And so we've put those boluses into all these animals in Alberta, BC, and Manitoba. They all have that technology. It requires a receiver. That's a gateway that they have to be probably within a kilometer or less from. So it does limit how you uh, move them out to pasture or the size of pasture they can be on because you'll have to continuously be moving that receiver if you're chasing animals in a large area. So we've kept them into smaller areas just to keep getting that, that data. And in the one situation in our Alberta heifers, they're actually being bred in a pen situation. So they're not confined situation so then we can get all the data from them. So that estrus detection pilot really paved the way to make this bigger heifer reproductive efficiency project go because we've got some good data showing us about you know who's drinking, when they're drinking, how often they're drinking, how much their temperature fluctuates if they're going into estrus um, and then maybe this data will tell us more once we know who ended up getting pregnant, who didn't. And the technology is also supposed to be able to tell us within 48 hours of when they're calving that they're going to be calving. So if there is some kind of a issue with a 
dystocia on these heifers, perhaps this technology will come in handy there as well. That part about being able to tell 48 hours before they calve is a really handy bit of information. If you're out calving in pasture or maybe not quite as close to where your cows are calving is what, what some people are. You've talked a little bit about the technologies that are being used with the boluses. What other technologies are being used in the study and what was the thinking behind their selection and how are they being used? Yeah, so the whole thinking behind this was that, was what do you use to select your replacement heifers? And so we went through a list and of that list we're like, where is there technology that can help us? So the list was, well, you need to know about temperament. So we have a shoot exit score. We can get lasers that measure that heifer when she exits the shoot, how long it takes her to get past a point, and that's a shoot exit speed. So that's one thing that gives us an assessment of temperament. Then we've got confirmation. Obviously, you have to visually assess them for feet and legs. You look at udders and teats as they get closer to having the calf, just body uh, shape and, and muscling and all those things. And so we have cameras that we're looking at. The, the cameras are smart cameras. They're supposed to be able to measure certain points on there. So we're still working through some of those algorithms to get it to recognize what a good heifer is or what, you know, adequate feet and legs are. So that's a, that's a whole nother project, but we've got the cameras there to validate what, what we've done. Then we've got on the confirmation really fits in is the car, some of the carcass traits in that ultrasound. So on these heifers, we've got uh, ultrasound measurements of their back fat, rib fat, rump fat, marbling, lean, lean meat yield. All those things are getting assessed through the ultrasound. So they get that. Then we move into some of the growth traits that are important. And so we need average daily gain. We need feed intake. Okay, the fertility. We need to know if she is reproductively sound. So we've brought in an ultrasound assessment that a qualified vet has done for us, looks at uterine tone. It looks at just the, the shape and size of all the reproductive organs. It also gives us an indication of follicle size and maturity. And so this particular ultrasound assessment needs to be done 60 days or less from when they're getting turned out with the bull. And then it, it gives a pretty good assessment of which ones are probably going to be able to be bred and which ones aren't. And the interesting thing we found was after we did that particular ultrasound, First off, he found a free Martin that we didn't know was there because all these heifers, as far as we knew, were just single born calves. But, you know, what we forgot about was you can have a, a twin, uh, a bull calf twin with the heifer that get, has an early embryonic death and is reabsorbed. Re and so the calf is born just as a single. You never knew there was a twin there to begin with, but it was there long enough that it did have an effect. And so that's what happened with, with this heifer. So that allowed her to be taken out. And then we had two more that just had abnormal reproductive tracts, small, twisted, just no good uterine tone. So there was just some odd things in, in their uh, reproductive tract. And so we have flagged those already. So, so for those, um, like a free Martin at each, each of Alberta and BC locations, and then some odd uh, ones that in the Alberta location, you know, so there's five heifers right there that we know are probably not fit to be turned out with the bull, but so if we can market them another way, that would bring extra dollars for this particular producer because there's no point keeping them with the bull if they're not going to end up pregnant. So just some of those things that we can go through. So that was our thinking. Let's get all these pieces that are so important to select replacement heifers and add another technology. And of course the bolus is the other one. 
temperature because if she's going to be sick or not uh, doing well, that temperature would show up. And same with the water. If she doesn't drink water, then we'll, we'll know that as well. So that's that. And then the camera and all of this to sort of validate it. I need to know that she was um, actively coming into heat before she got turned out with the bull. And so the camera in the feedlot pen, looking at all these animals and us trying to tell the camera, that's what a standing heat looks like, alert us when there is one. You know, those are parts of this project as well. And does this project use GPS data in any way? So we would like it to. We had uh, used a different GPS technology with our um, bull project and we had a bull project where they're you know, breeding the animals in the large pastures. And we weren't overly happy with some of the results we got from that GPS technology. So we've changed to a different one, but just with supply issues, it wasn't delivered in time. So the GPS will come on these heifers. We just don't have them. Well, I shouldn't say we don't have all of them. We, we have um, the BC location did get enough tags, GPS tags. And so they do have that information coming. So I know where the heifers are out on pasture. The other two locations don't. We just didn't have enough technology to provide them with with that piece yet, but that will come in the end. Whenever the equipment arrives, we'll put it on and go from there. And how many people are involved in the data collection and organizing? Because it seems like there's so much data and very different data that you're looking at, that there's got to be a, a team that's working with you behind this to try and get it all organized and figure it out at the end. Oh, for sure. There's There's never a research project that can be, you know, owned by one person, it's it's for sure a team. So at each location, there are the managers and the people, the farm staff that are running the cattle normally. And then when we have these extra bits of uh, information or these processing days on the heifers to collect that data, there'll be another couple of people at each location. I mean, at Lakeland College, I have a research associate, two research students. Both of them are Lakeland College alumni and one is actually in an intern program with me for eight months um, as part of that ag technology degree program of him. And then the other student is actually a fourth year now going into the degree program, but she's a fourth year at the University of Saskatchewan finishing up her animal science degree. So again, those two are two research student assistants. And then we have a, more to the team that isn't there for the day-to-day -day of, the, of the heifer data collection, but you know some of the farm staff that feeds them as well as some of the research staff that is doing some of the statistical analysis. And then another research assistant that helps with some of the outreach and, and technology transfer pieces, some of the writing of some of the uh, results. So it really is like, it's a, it's a large team. There's another aspect too, with all this data that we're collecting through digital platforms from these remote sensors, you know, you have to check it all the time and, and bring it back into some interpreted form. And so I have a, uh, a, soft, a group of software engineers that are helping us navigate through that and trying to make one platform that brings in all these pieces as opposed to me checking every day and logging into you know, three or four different platforms. So that's another aspect because it's just not, it's not very attractive to have to you know, start your day checking your cows by first going to the computer and looking at six different platforms and then you you know then go out and feed them and then fix fence and then you know all these things that have to get done so we're so although it's seems kind of bulky and cumbersome now to get through it we're hoping to streamline that and get get it to more of what's truly precision farming and ranching where we can you know have the right 
tools with the, you know, with the right animals in the right place at the right time and get the information we need. It's amazing that everybody is able to, to kind of have it all come together to do this project. It's still early in the study, but are you seeing any early indications of promising applications for commercial beef cattle production? Yeah, if, if I look at some of that technology, although it's pricey now, maybe in time it comes down and then it could it could warrant adoption on a ranch. So for the boluses, that might be something. Um, the other thing is definitely with that breed composition, there's a tool called Invigor HX. It's, it allows you to get that breed composition, which gives you an indication of their hybrid vigor. And so that very seems very useful for mating selection so that we can choose the right breed of bull to put on these commercial crossbred heifers so we can maximize our performance and hybrid vigor. So that's another one. And, and the other one was with this ultrasound of the heifers. I mean, we kind of take it for granted that a lot of guys use um, breeding soundness evaluations on their bulls. They do a semen check. And so really this is no different to bring in, you know, all your replacement heifers for the year, do the ultrasound assessment. It basically costs about five to $6 per head. And, and for us to have, you know, identified a free Martin, identified a couple that had, you know, abnormal tracks, that in itself is, is worth it before we go ahead and invest all this money and, uh, you know, pasture and time and, and bull services on heifers that won't ever breed. So those things, you know, they're already out there being adopted by producers, but there could be other ones that you'd want to add to that list that you normally do if you're a commercial cattleman. And these are some of the top ones we've seen so far. I'm glad that you included what the price was per head for that ultrasound, because I was thinking that it was going to be so much more than that, but it really is quite affordable when you're thinking about spending five or $6 a head to ultrasound or the cost of feeding an animal for an entire year. That's not going to raise a calf. That's right. And, and not know it for a long time. Right. But I bring it up too, because there is, I, I specifically say ultrasound of the reproductive tract, because there are some other tools where you can do a pelvic assessment. It's, it's a kind of a, how do I describe it? Maybe it looks like a pair of large pliers or tongs in a way, and then you would insert that and, and open it. And it gives you a measurement of the, the depth of the heifer's pelvis. And then you can turn it on sideways and do the width of it. And so there's been some places that'll offer that as a service of a Reprotract assessment, but what you need to know is it's not really highly correlated to her calving difficulty, and that's what it's sort of meant to look at. And that's because the, there's some ligaments that stretch in that pelvis, and so you're just measuring it as a closed pelvis. But once she calves, with the stretching that happens, sometimes the correlation isn't isn't direct from her as a yearling heifer to a first calf heifer because she has more more stretch in her than you know another one and so to pay for that you're not getting as good information and i don't know what they pay for this pelvic assessment but i think it's like three to four dollars or something you know you may as well just bring them home and spend five or six and get a more complete assessment that has more meaning and and does truly affect the outcome of those heifers with their um, pregnancy outcomes because the research has shown that for sure with the ultrasound this one might be a little bit repetitive uh, because we've already actually discussed quite a lot of this, I think, already. But this question wraps it up really nicely. Can you explain what precision ranching means and how this is useful for beef cattle producers? Yeah, just the whole concept of precision ranching is just being able to target, you know, the right animals in the right place with the right amount of 
whatever it is you're doing. So in our case, you know, we're looking at a certain age of an animal and then we use a certain, you know, fertility assessment. Um, we wanna have the right type of animals, whether that's breed with the right resources, you know, depending, you know, your breed choice and your management and your feed is different than mine in a different area. And so that's really what it is. It's about bringing the different tools together that can help you um, find certain pieces of data that can be useful in your decision-making. And I say useful in that we can get lots of data and we can collect so much data, but if it's not interpreted to be meaningful for you to make a decision upon, then really there's no point wasting your time taking it, right? And that's part of the issue with this, the software engineers that I'm working with is, you know, when you have the knowledge of the cattleman and, and the cow-calf operation and what's important to you to, you know, gather in data, then you can tell them what they need to build for you. But if you left it up to a company to say, I'm building this great platform, you can, you can collect X, Y, Z. If Y and Z aren't important to me, then why waste my money on it, right? So we're really trying to bring that platform knowledge of how to get one that streamlines all that data and gives good information back to a producer that's going to say, yeah, I want that piece of information. I'm, I'm going to use it. And so in our case, it's really about with all the things we're measuring, can we get a number in the end? And I mean, part of this is we've got DNA. We're also working on what we call a heifer profitability index with another group of scientists. They're looking at all the DNA and coming up with this, with this number, just like they've done for the feedlot industry. They've got a feedlot profitability index, quite accurate, works very well with being able to sort animals into different feeding groups in the feedlot and target them for different marketings. So on the heifer side, you know, same thing. Can we bring all these different traits together and which ones are most important? And how can we determine which heifers are in the top two thirds of our herd and, and keep an eye on those, those ones that are in the bottom one third or even cull some of those earlier than, than keeping them any longer than we have to. And so the precision part is really about getting to that data in a usable form and affordable because I mean, we can ask for a lot of things and we'll have to pay for it too. For sure. At Lakeland College, through applied research programs, students have the opportunity for hands-on learning. Can you share how students are involved in this study? Yeah, so the college has a really neat model in that students that come in, in any of their animal science programs, or even the crop science, they're put into what they call a student-managed farm, and they are given a job, and so that might be nutrition manager, it might be um, breeding manager, uh, might be herd health manager, whatever it is. And they have to make the decisions for that herd for that year. Marketing is part of it as well. And so these students really have to have build the confidence to make the decisions and deal with the consequences of those decisions. Um, so the students are all involved in that aspect with the different animals on the college. But in our research, we've tried to bring in these research aspects specifically for our research herd. And so we have one herd that's dedicated to research and the students in that group We'll be able to see how the research is formed, how things you know move along, because it's it's one thing to say, you know, oh, I don't want to be involved in research as a student that comes to a diploma, because they might go back to the farm and they're going to operate that that farmer ranch and they don't think research affects them. But what they need to know is that sometimes they might want to be involved in a new research project because they might be the collaborator that provides the cattle for me to test something out that they might not wanna put the whole cost on, you know, to be an early adopter themselves. This way it allows us to collaborate and partner and 
I get extra capital for a research project and they get some extra knowledge or, or um, benefits from whatever the research might be showing. So just to know that aspect of it is useful. And then with the technology we're using, the students have been able to see how it worked, you know, how the GPS tags were put on the, on the cattle, how the boluses were put in, what kind of data is showing up. And so there's that aspect. And then of course, anytime I need, you know, a summer student or some of these contract jobs that come up, these past students have a lot of, you know, skills and expertise and they, and it looks great on their resume and they are often the students that I'll hire for some of these research projects. So there's a lot of ways they can get involved in the research. Um, even though they're a student at the college, they'll either get to see it working in real life or they'll uh, might be looking for a job sometime later in the industry that might need their skill set. That's awesome that there's students are able to have that much experience when they're in that student role. Um, when can listeners expect to see results of this study and where will they be available? So the results, probably nothing until the spring, because first we got to make sure these heifers got pregnant and then see, you know, who didn't and who they were, what uh, different attributes they had compared to the ones that did. So what we normally do is any of the funders for these projects, we have to write reports back to them. And so those funders can then distribute those reports out to their audience. Same goes for all my collaborators. So those reports go back to Manitoba Beef Forge Initiatives. They can distribute it out to their audience, as will the BC Cattle Industry Development Fund, Cane Project, which is the Canadian Agriculture Automation Innovation Network. The colleges will have their magazines and reports. So again, you'll have to look at websites. I mean, you can contact me directly, but you can also go to the different websites of the Cane, of the Ardar, which is a funder in Alberta, and look at the, re at the results there because they should post them on their, on their websites. And also look for different uh, popular press. I'll be doing you know, some social media, some magazine or radio interviews here and there. So you might hear about it through those methods as well. What are the next steps for this project or this research after the completion of this current project? So this project this is what we call the Cane Heifer Reproductive Project. is three years and we've got one year kind of done. So there's two and a half years more to go. So when that's done, I mean, the hope is that we've got other projects that we're developing that will take advantage of some of the, the better parts of what we found out in this project. And then we'll be developing those for, for new research projects. So it's really about finding the good pieces and developing them further or developing other, other research projects from what we've learned on, on this one. And I mean, overall, you know, we really want to get to having a program at Lakeland College that shows to industry and to students both the heifer development piece and the utilizing of promising technologies, remote sensors, different things like that, that might have utility with the beef industry. Before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners about the agriculture technology degree at Lakeland College? You've kind of hinted at it a couple of times, but it is a new program. And can you just give us a little bit of an overview of what that looks like and maybe where students can go from there? Yeah, so the it was a new program developed. So last year was the first intake of students. So students that have like a two-year diploma can enter into this ag technology degree program and get a further two more years that gives them a, a degree. And they can go into either the crop stream or the livestock stream. And so they get specific 
teachings in either of those those streams with the current technologies that are out in the industry as well as what we're using at um, the different colleges and universities. And so the students spend the first year of this degree program in classroom type scenario. And then their second year, actually they get placed over the summer after their first year into an intern and they work, but they work with that industry partner on different projects and they write up a final project on that. And so basically their, their second year of that two year degree portion after they have their first two years of diploma, that second year is really a paid internship in industry. And so in the case of the student I have, you know, he's in the livestock stream, he's being paid to be a research summer assistant, he's developing knowledge on all the remote sensors and having to um, put them in like good working order with solar panels and because some of them are their remote, we need to move them from here and there. So he's the one with the technology expertise that he gathered in his first year of the program. And now he's the one building and, and tinkering and troubleshooting with all the issues that we have on this technology, networking with a lot of different people in the industry, great experience for him and, and what he you know ends up with doing for his career. Well, he's got a great start with all this technology. So that's how that uh, program works with the two years at the college. Interesting. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Well, just that, you know, we are really doing research because we want ranchers and farmers to adopt some of the findings. And so if there's any, you know, industry issues out there that you think just isn't being looked at hard enough, we're always entertaining, you know, a discussion or a phone call or, or an invitation somewhere to speak about our, our research to help get ranchers to find some solutions that keep them competitive and sustainable and profitable. If listeners want to find out more about the project, where can they go to access this information? The best place is probably contact some of the scientists that are involved in it. So contact myself, contact some of the funders because they often have, they highlight the different research. So that would be the best between the funders and the researchers. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think that your research is so interesting. And when I was reading the little bits of information that Mary Jane was sending so I could prepare the questions, it's such a huge project with so many different aspects. And and I'm really excited to find out kind of more information when you have some of those project findings at the conclusion of the project. Yeah, for sure. We can, I mean, we'll be giving all the reports back to Mary Jane and the different groups. So someone will have it. You'll be able to get more information on it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and in joining me today. You're welcome, Chantal. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.